on today's show. If somebody said, okay, because people do say this, you know, um, they say, well, you, you know, sometimes I interviewed and they say, let's take the radical you. Would you shut down business schools? And the answer would be yes. <laughs> right? Uh, um, and, and then people say, so what would you do instead, Smarty? And I would say, look, uh, I would have everybody become history majors. I said, yeah. I said, yeah. You could be a music history major. You could be a political history major. You could be a military history major. You could do art history major. It doesn't matter. What history majors know is that little events count in the long term. Five, four, Welcome everyone to today's show. This is Eric Custer. And today we get the chance to really talk to an individual who's been described as kind of the evangelist of entrepreneurship, Carl Schramm. Carl spent a decade at the helm of the Coffin Foundation, which is truly the, the leading research and thought leading institution on entrepreneurship. And Carl had just released a new book called Burn the Business Plan that, that really does take issue with some of the ways that we talk about entrepreneurial education. And in fact, I think you'll be shocked at a little... A little bit about Carl's sort of irreverence for the way that we teach and sort of the history behind it. What I love about the conversation with Carl is that we really get to the heart of sort of teaching and training and, and having people who want to one day be an entrepreneur really sort of rethink and be a contrarian about how to actually set themselves up for success. Um, Carl will share some insights on what to do in terms of college, like what to major in, even if you need college, as well as like what to do early in your career to set yourself up for a, a life as a successful entrepreneur. It is one of those things that Carl has been described as a contrarian, but what I think underlies all of it is really questioning what does it mean to be someone who wants to be entrepreneurial, have autonomy, and ultimately become a creator. And I think that's the real core here is to sort of use his data and evidence as an economist to will help recognize why maybe some of the premises of sort of taking all of these normal paths of like, I got to learn how to start a company, I got to come up with an idea now. And, uh, and he describes really like what you should be thinking about early in your career, particularly if you want to be set up for success long-term as an entrepreneur. Um, Carl is definitely a contrarian, so be prepared to be a little bit shocked as he shoots arrows at the folks that uh, that I think he, he needs to. But but it is a really interesting conversation and I'm glad we get some, to spend some time with Carl Schramm, who is the author of Burn the Business Plan and, uh, and, and pulls no punches saying that we should burn the business plan and really understand what the great entrepreneurs uh, truly, truly do. I am stoked to have you on the podcast today, uh, Carl. It was I was telling my wife last night that I got the the good pleasure of sort of meeting you and knowing you through like fourteen different ways through Bo Fishback and through Startup Weekend, and so you sort of are like the uh, the guru of this kind of entrepreneurial community building, and and have had your fingers and everything, and now a new book. So I'm excited to hang out with you today. Great, I'm so, I'm, I'm happy to be back with you. Yeah, and. Uh, to talk about this new book. I love it. I love it. You know, I want to get right into the book because I think as I was preparing for this, when I was reading it, I found myself nodding vigorously while reading it. Um, and I think, I think as someone who has been, uh, you know, as I shared with you, I was so disillusioned with teaching entrepreneurship that I literally quit and famous last words stumbled into something else that has sort of moved me to get back in. But it's basically like sort of completely going against the norm of what everyone else does. And so what I would love to have you rail on a little bit, and I'll, I'll sort of like tee this up with a, with a line from the book that, that basically says it's called every man and princes. 
And I'll let you then rail on this a little bit, but you're right. This book is for those who think they might want to start a business someday. It is for every man, a medieval term describing regular people. Most people who start companies are like you. They've never come close to meeting a venture capitalist, never studied entrepreneurship in college, and have never heard of a business incubator. And as importantly for the title of the book, never wrote a business plan. So so tell me a little bit about why you decided uh, sort of we needed to think differently about um, how we're how we're training and thinking about creating more entrepreneurs. Well, uh, this all began, you know, when I was president of the Coffin Foundation. And the reason I became president of the Coffin Foundation was I was running a uh, small investment firm, a, a merchant bank, uh, after I left the, the presidency of, of Fortis's health insurance companies. And the reason I was there was my very first business after I came out of, the, I had a really leave Hopkins because I invented a, a business that evaluated hospital creditworthiness and their clinical outcomes. So I'd been big doing big data in um, you know healthcare for a long time. And the real big surprise that I talk about in the book was, I think like most entrepreneurs, I surprised myself by becoming an entrepreneur. I was going to be a professor, a real professor, mm. a professor of economics. Right. Okay, I was teaching at a real university, Johns Hopkins, and um, <laughs> yeah. you know uh, when I had my <clears throat> entrepreneurial moment, I was really, really. Uh, in a sort of attraction rejection moment because I wanted to be a professor. That was my goal in life. And here was this idea, which if it was going to have legs and really make a difference in the world. And I think Eric, that's a real issue for uh, entrepreneurs to contemplate. I think real entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, don't have any choice. They sort of, uh, their ideas sneak up on them. And then when they see it, they know that this idea could actually be good for people. It would be valuable for people It make it, make their lives more convenient or right. uh, make what jobs they do. You know, I think almost everybody who becomes an entrepreneur builds a tool of one kind. It may be uh, a physical tool. It might be a virtual tool. It could be a digital tool. But the whole trick is the, the market values uh, convenience or it values something to save time or something to do something really differently. Right. So you have a driverless car. We have a new drug that stops, uh, you know, pneumonia, mm -hmm. right? Um, right. And the people who discover these things basically say, well, I could write another paper in, you know, Science Magazine, or I can start a drug company, um, <laughs> you know, cure people. Right. So um, there I was, and I decided, okay, so I've been a professor at Hopkins for 15 minutes, and, um, you know, or it's just 15 minutes to 15 years, I'm sorry. And um, Feel, it felt like 15 uh, minutes, I'm sure. Well, it did actually, <laughs> but holy smokes, I got to stop doing this. So that's how it starts. Right. And when I got to Kaufman, um, I began to meet loads of professors of entrepreneurship. I've never met one in my life. Okay. Uh, so the year is 2002. That's when I started at Kaufman. And I really went there because they had a pot of money and I was as an investor, you know, before going there. I kept looking for the magic sauce of who are these entrepreneurs? And I read all the books and, you know, I'd meet venture capital guys. I was a limited partner, still am, in several venture firms. And nobody could tell me what it was that was going on here that made any of this look like science. So anyway, um, at, at Kaufman, we actually engaged in the business of really doing research. So before I got there, there was no research that told us what the average age of anybody was who started <laughs> a business, right? So everybody thought it was 21-year-olds. Right. And lo and behold, when we did real economic research, it was 39. Hmm. And nobody had any clue about the connection between entrepreneurs and the big economy, 
which I think was always the big mystery to me. You know, so everybody's all hyped up about entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, but nobody would say why. Right. And it was it was the data we developed there that said, well, this is why right. firms less than five years old create 80% of all new mm -hmm. jobs. Well, now we ought to pay attention mm -hmm. to helping entrepreneurs because it's, big, it's important to the big economy. Not only do they, do they give us, you know, all this new stuff that's wonderful, right, but right. they also revitalize the economy. Now, this is all the insights of uh, a few, few academics, Joseph Schumpeter, but he died in the 1950s. Right. And he knew this. He's the guy who created the phrase creative destruction. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so, uh, you know, when I got there, uh, the more and more I watched this, the less and less faith I had that anybody could teach entrepreneurship. And, you know, Mr. Kaufman, who had started a gigantic business and important to something I want you to talk to me about later on in the interview, mm -hmm. who actually, his, his company, Marion Laboratories, Kaufman was always proud of how many people who had worked at Marion Laboratories, went off and started new businesses. So I think in a way, I saw him as a proto-incubator of uh, entrepreneurs. And that was lots different than the incubators I was visiting. And it was lots different because it's Kaufman, president of Coffin Foundation. People were always fighting for me to be a business plan judge. And that's probably where I began to see this very clearly, that when people would write these business plans, and you know, you you know, you've seen this because you've talked. Oh, terrible! Yeah, you yeah. know, sometimes these people would flop down a seventy-page business plan right, right in front of me, and I think, holy smokes! Out of date as soon as they they basically push uh, push send. Yeah, but even more, um, you know, it, I can't write seventy pages of anything <laughs> um, in less than three months. Right. Okay, that's right. That's any good? Yeah. Right. Took me three years to write the book. So um, anyway, and then. Um, I guess the moment, uh, so so you can ask me what else is going on here, you know, um, uh, there's sort of two themes. One is I became very, very skeptical yeah. of professors. And then I began to look at the research that these guys are all getting tenure on. And it's indecipherable. Hmm. And it, it, it looked to me like, this is a real scam. Right. Uh, these guys are writing papers for each other so they can declare they're great researchers. But when I looked at it, it was very much like business school research. Yeah. It was all stories. Right. It was case studies, case studies. And it's having been trained as an economist, um, you know, uh, economists like big data. Right. They don't, they don't like stories. Right. Or they say right. a story, you know, they say, okay, here's a story. 15 banks have been consolidated in the last two years, right? Something's going on. What is the uh, economic genesis of this consolidation mm -hmm. and then you go to town and look at all the bank data in the world you know and you go back 50 years and you start to see patterns and stuff right mm -hmm. now business school guys would basically say oh wow they would miss 15 of them consolidating and right. they a whole story about two banks consolidating right right, right. and, and anecdotes it's all anecdotes mm -hmm. right and i thought you know if we just serve the whole economy if our executives read this way or think this way. You say something, I mean, I think it's, a, there's a point in, in there that I think is important to, to lay on, which is, is that in a lot of ways, you know, again, the title is burn the business plan. You, you write uh -huh. and say basically that 
the business plan more than anything is a proxy of professors sort of trying to like intersect themselves in because you're right. I mean, I, I like saw this and I had to like read it. I highlighted it. You know, none of the of America's great companies, those of which business professors were preparing the next generation of managers for had started with written plans. Nearly all of Fortune Magazine's legacy hundred companies, including American Airlines, Disney, DuPont, GE, General Motors, Exxon, Ford, IBM, J&J, Procter & Gamble, blah, 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 started without plans. So the the plan is not like I mean we we glorify it and we sort of think that way but it's not like how real entrepreneurs start their businesses. Yeah, that's exactly right. So a big question to me came like how do professors decide they wanted to teach business plans? Right, that's what I was wondering. Here's the answer. I, I don't develop it in the book cuz uh, my editors took a lot of this out cuz I thought it was very interesting cuz I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm deep into history. Yeah. And, and basically what happens is uh, and you could tell the story through through Harvard. Um, Kids, right after uh, the world's kind of discovered that Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were getting rich. Yeah, right. By creating right. these companies that were right. huge. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the theory at the time was, oh, holy smokes. They, they basically said, IBM is wrong. Okay. Well, business schools were all teaching everybody to get ready to have a, you know, a desk of a certain size in IBM. Right. You're going to be a middle manager. And then the horse race will be on to see who gets to be uh president of IBM, but none of you can even get into the racetrack right. until you have our MBA. Right, right, right. right. And then what happened was, um, and I know this through one of the guys in, I talk about in the book, business students at Harvard and other places, but I can tell it through the lens of Harvard, they had a club that I think was called the Small Business Club, right? Mm-hmm. Or, the new, or the New Business Club. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't use the word entrepreneur. Right. Okay. It's hard for people to understand that. But if you crank back to 1980, nobody had this word on their lips. Hmm. So kids began to introduce or invite into a student-run club people who had started businesses. And I know this through uh, talking to Howard Head, who used to be my neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. And they asked him up because he'd invented skis, right? Mm -hmm. And it was the faculty who, who, there were no classes. In 1980, there were zero classes on how to start a business. Really? (laughs) <laughs> it's kind it's of fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you really d- deeply dig into a lot of our, um, you know, disciplines around this, you know, economics had no interest in how businesses started. Right. It, absolutely zero. Right. And, it, and back then, if you went to Harvard, and it's, it's even worse now, they're like no professors of business history. Hmm. The presumption is these big businesses always existed. So let's get on with it. Right. 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 And the question of how these businesses c- right. came to start. Okay. So. They conveniently overlooked the fact that you just pointed to. There were no business plans. Right. So, right, right. But, they, but they had nothing to teach. So what did they do? Hmm. They, they did a shotgun marriage. This is what happened, largely. Okay. Um, they knew they had to teach something that looked orderly, 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 mm. right? Mm. Looked like it had some science and order. They went to mm-hmm. the Department of Strategy. Now, you know, if you're a corporate strategist, you write plans. Yeah. That's what you do. That's right. Okay. You're a manager. So suddenly, ah, plan. Okay. There's one ingredient. Yeah. Second ingredient. Interesting. The finance departments were faster off the blocks at understanding these small companies because out of, out of the clear blue around 1980, there was a new form of investing and it was called venture capital. Ah. So the finance department guys knew about venture capital. So the entrepreneurship guy said, okay, here's the shotgun marriage. Right. We, we snitched the ways you do written plans from strategy. And uh, we got to do something about finance. So 
the whole narrative, the entire narrative, total narrative was venture capital, hmm. right? So they completely overlooked the history of how these businesses started and they were out there. Okay. You know, Roy Crockett already started uh, McDonald's, right? Right. And he didn't do that with venture capital. Right. So all, all the real facts that were the grounding <laughs> of the first curriculum that is still in place in almost all business schools. And this is just a yeah. couple of footnote here. Cause when I talk about this with professors now, they, they look at me like I'm retarded and they say, yeah. know, Oh, we don't teach business plans anymore. You know, Oh, that's something of the past. <laughs> and I heard that so many times when I was writing the book, I said, Hmm, okay, I'm going to do an analysis of course, catalog descriptions. Right. Mm -hmm. And over 90% in all the biggest business schools say, yeah. you know, the capstone of our introductory course to entrepreneurship is plan. writing a business plan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there's even a disconnect between, they know it doesn't work. Right. right? <clears throat> they know it's kind of archaic. And so you, you, it's, you know, it's fascinating to think about because I think that there's these two factors going on that you talk about from the Kaufman research is, you know, the, we, we are now, I mean, we're just flooding the more and more people want to, to take entrepreneurship classes. They want to sort of be, be these things. But yet the disconnect is even today you're seeing, you know, less than 2% of people under 35 are starting companies. The yep. average entrepreneur is 40. Yep. So the, the bigger, you know, if you really get to the subtext of this one, effectively you're, you're sort of saying two things, right? Number one is saying like, listen, the way we're teaching it is, is shitty. Mm -hmm. And, but, but we're not teaching people sort of the mindset elements to sort of be ready when they're 40 to actually start a business. So, so let's go to that then. Like what should people who want to be the next Steve Jobs, you know, you're saying don't go to get a major in entrepreneurship. What do you do? I mean, what should they be starting to think about? Well, uh, I'm, I'm pretty clear about that. Uh, if you look at statistics, um, I think the very best place to learn well, let's just look at who gets to be uh, an entrepreneur, okay? Right. Um, if you look at college graduates, it's people who've been principally in engineering, okay? Hmm. They want mm -hmm. everybody else, certainly anybody yep. who's gone through a business program. Yep. And that is people in the hard sciences. And hmm. the reason is they know how to synthesize knowledge. And if you think about how people are taught as engineers, they are taught problem solving. Right. And their professors, right. if they're in good schools, are working on an honest-to-God problem right now, and they can't help but drag the kids into it. So after the introductory courses are over, you know, and you take an advanced seminar in, uh, let's say, uh, synthetic material, right, you're dealing with a professor who's actually on the front line tinkering and synthesizing and discovering and doing research, right? And many more professors of engineering start businesses. Mm -hmm. And professors of entrepreneurship. Think about it. Our, our most, <laughs> our most, right. our most generative school in terms of new businesses start. Okay, is MIT, right? Yeah. And, and if you look at MIT graduates, there are studies that indicate that something on the order of, you know, three or four or five percent of the world economy exists because of MIT graduates. Really, it's enormous. Wow. Okay, so it's engineering to begin with. That's so mm -hmm. the emphasis should be there. So one of the things I mean, you know, if if uh, five hundred college presidents were listening to this podcast, I would say, boys and girls, uh, right now, uh, you know, if you've got one good professor of entrepreneurship, move them in to be an advisor into the Department of Engineering and get it mm -hmm. out of the business school, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's uh, sort of one thing. Then if you look at the other folks who become entrepreneurs, you do see exactly as you pointed out, they're 40 when they start their first yeah. business, right? right? Right. Well, what do you do between graduating from college that's if you right. go to college and fewer right. than half percent 
fewer than 50% of all engineers, of all entrepreneurs go to college, by the way. So college isn't mm. critical. Okay. But what do they do in the 15 years in between 23, 24, 25, or sometimes 17 years and starting the business at 39, right? Mm-hmm. They work in companies. Yeah. And in fact, if you look at the people working companies, their job tenure in their companies is longer right. than most everybody else. They're there right. really learning. Right. And people say, well, how can that be? Well, the real reason is even in business schools, people have these bizarre views of what happens in companies. Now, I've worked in companies. I've started companies. Mm-hmm. I consult to companies all the time. They are constantly in the business of innovating. And the story I tell in my book basically is, you know, if you have a huge company, and I'm not going to fill in any blanks, ones I, I, I know and work for, you know, there is so much innovation going on. Um, you know, R&D spending inside our nation's companies, all told, is lots bigger than the R&D spending inside universities. And that R&D spending is geared towards practical tools and new products. So if you work in one of those companies, you've seen, you've participated in the emergence of new technology, so you're, or the application of technology to new products. So it, it becomes part of what you know without even knowing it, right? Mm. And you're mm-hmm. in the process of seeing innovation, which is the critical first step. There's, there's no new business unless what you have to sell is different and better than something that already exists. So working in a big company, you see the company struggling to get the new stuff ready. And as you know, Eric, from our previous talks, you know, a lot of these companies do innovation real well. Uh, right. They know their right. job is to get new right. products out. Okay. Yep. So they're a lot more scientific about it than mm-hmm. business schools would ever have you understand. <laughs> and it's not like they all run around looking for, oh, gosh, we're going to have a disruptive innovation. <laughs> right. You know, right. uh-uh. Their innovations, some of which become disruptive, are stepwise. They're iterative. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. They build and build and build. And all the time, companies... You know, I'm working in one right now where, holy smokes, three years, four years of work towards what they thought they were going to do. Right. A light bulb goes on and holy smokes, they got a new product, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a Jeff, Jeff Bezos says that. I mean, yeah. he talks about, you know, 99% of the innovation is stuff you guys on the street would never care about. Um, and that's the reason we win is that we are constantly innovating on things that aren't quote unquote disruptive, but you take all these little things and they create massive pieces. And, and the second part is he's like, listen, we expect some of these innovations to take a decade or more. Mm-hmm. So we're playing the long game and, and it's, you know, the, the chess versus checkers analogies I think fits in well is that there is this like, there's this like under sort of selling of the value of, of what you learn at your job. If the, you're in the right company that I think is, yeah. is certainly being you know, this like dismissiveness. Oh, you can't really learn entrepreneurship inside a company. <laughs> yes. You know, I think some of your research, 98% of entrepreneurs have a job yeah. before they become an entrepreneur. They're not Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like dropping out of college. Yeah. yeah. And, and to go back to your uh, Bezos uh, reference, you know, one of the other things people see is they see scale. Now think mm-hmm. about that. You know, if you work at Amazon, one of the things you're, you're, you're implicitly taking in through your pores, right? Is scale. This place is huge, right? And the only way uh, you affect the welfare of lots and lots and lots and lots of people is to be big. And, you know, we teach companies, it drives me nuts, and I, I've, I've given up on railing against this, but it was our own stupid State Department that brought in this word, and, you know, it's professors of entrepreneurship who don't have a real framework of how to think about stuff. Suddenly, we've been infected in the last five or six years 
with this phrase right out of the European Union of small and medium enterprises, right? So when you teach that to kids, um, you know, you, you develop a theory that they're big companies, you know, that are lazy and they don't do, you know, important new stuff. Uh, and then there are cute little small and medium enterprises. This is the European right, thing, right. right? And if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're not going to be a big company. So you're going to be a cute little company. And this is a really bad way of thinking because now we, we generate entrepreneurs who don't think they're going to be around for a long time. Most people historically start businesses because they, they really want to make a huge contribution and they want to really be in a platform they create that could be their life's work for all of the rest of their life, okay? Um, and business schools have slowly changed the notion of why entrepreneurs exist. And the answer is they create a transactional entity. They're not really building a firm for the long run. They're building right. a sparkling little, you know, gem that some big company or some, you know, leveraged buyout crowd will buy and they will have had a transaction and then they'll get rich and be able to run around pounding their chest that they're a big entrepreneur, right? Right. That's that's not what happens. You know, I tell right. a story of a guy in the book. It's perfect for where we are in this conversation, Eric. Perfect. This guy uh, worked for a company that uh, made all the tubes to move banks, uh, to move money around in banks, like oh, in suburban yeah. banking, right? Poof, yeah, there's, yeah. Your, there's your change. Yeah. You know, I put a bunch of change in one of those. I got it, got it stuck. I, I was, uh, the first time I did it, I was like a teenager and I was like, oh yeah, I just put all my quarters and stuff like that. And they were like, what is wrong with you, you idiot? And I was like, oh, I just thought it was magic, but yeah. <laughs> not, not so magic <laughs> when you put a bag full of coins in there. Yeah, well, people think, you know, oh, that's, that, that died off with the dinosaurs. Well, I, I, I always say, yeah, go in and look at the ceiling at uh, Home Depot, right? Because they're blowing mm -hmm. cash all over that store all the time, right? Anyway, mm -hmm. this guy worked for uh, Diebold, the company that did that stuff for banking. And at one point, uh, they said, you know, this isn't part of our core mission, which is a really key for if you want to be an entrepreneur. Anytime you hear an executive say, hmm, it's not our core competency. You know something good's going to happen from an entrepreneurial perspective. They're going to spin something out, right? So... Uh, Diebold basically say, we're not going to do health anymore. You know, not, it's all going to be computerized. Um, we're going into banking. And the guy was 54 who, who was responsible for the story I'm going to tell. He argued with Diebold and said, are you guys crazy? Healthcare is the growth industry. So this is, this is now 40 years ago. And he said, you know, the economy is going cashless. I think your business is going to get smaller and healthcare is going to get bigger. And they said, you know, that's not how our consultants see it. That's not our core competency. It's banking. Um, he said, okay, why don't you give the healthcare business to me? So they hadn't invested in it. So he had to, he had to do a lot of science. He, he computerized the whole system and so forth. But 40 years later, he owns a huge company. Uh, one third of the hospitals in the country have his systems to do the, wow. to do the huge system down at MD Anderson in, in Houston that ties mm -hmm. eight hospitals together. He built a factory in Houston. He's got a brand new factory in Baltimore. He's 94. And I just had lunch with him a few weeks ago. He said to me in the last six months, he's got five new patents and he's about to start a new company. Okay. Jeez. Now, he didn't, he wasn't in it. You know, he was a vet from World War II. It never occurred right. to him in a million years he'd own his own company. Right. Ever. Right. But he was there right. at the switch point and he knew the industry backward. And think of all the right. stuff he knew. He knew scale. So he wasn't scared mm -hmm. by big. Right. Uh, he knew what all the engineering was. He knew all the suppliers. 
he had this enormous social network of hospitals in the United States who he dealt with, right? So he went into the poker game with five or six great cards. Now he had a struggle because the technology was dated in hospitals. Some hospitals were given up on it, um, but he had cards to start the whole thing all over again. And he's been phenomenally successful. And, you know, you, you think about my book in the, in the rest of entrepreneurship books. And if I said to you, now I'm going to tell a story about a guy who's 94 and started a company that blows cash around a building. People yeah. say, Oh, right. No, right. really? Oh, I really want to read that. I mean, you know, right. this, you know, haven't you heard of the digital revolution? Right. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we live in a tremendously physical world and it ain't changed since the dinosaurs were here. Right. Mm -hmm. People got to make all the physical stuff around us. Right. There's right. computers, cell phones, you know, driverless cars. That's where the engineering is all piling up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now people building driverless cars, there are spin outs after spin outs after spin outs after spin outs. Uh, there are engineers building because they have a vision that the people who are doing driverless cars and driverless trucks don't have this particular component figured out. They're out there building companies like crazy with a view that they're going to contribute to the much bigger, you know, picture that's evolving. And it's been like this forever. You know, in Detroit, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, there were jillions of little companies. My grandfather started one of them, you know, a heat treating company um, that helped the car industry cut gears, you know, make brakes, all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. Same thing in aviation. Same thing's going on right now with the driverless world. So what do you, I guess, is you, if you think about, you know, this, this podcast is sort of, there's a lot of folks I think who probably buy into your theory, which is, I think we've gone through this wave where people said, oh, entrepreneurship, I learned to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, we're becoming in this backlash now to say like, ah, that's not really what I want to do. So would you tell someone who's trying to pick that next job, what, what should they look for in a company to get themselves? And let's say they're not technical. If you're technical, right. I think there's a set of companies, but let's say you're not technical, which is a large number of people. What kind of things should they look for in a company to, to learn to learn from? Okay, I'll answer that, but I want to slip in the narrative first. So you're a student yeah. of mine, right? And you say, mm -hmm. hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. I always say, do you have a great idea? Nope. I say, here's, the, here's, here's a life's plan, right? Why don't you think you become an entrepreneur when you're 40, right? Right. Get your family settled. Get some money in the bank, right? Go to work for a big company and see if you really want to be an entrepreneur and see if you can come out of the big company with a great idea. I mean, yep. a really great idea, one that you yep. can be really passionate about and know what passion is because you've been working for 15 years and you know the market and you got the social network of what's going on in the industry, right? And incidentally, you might teach yourself an awful lot of technical stuff, mm. right? Um so that would be the first thing. And then the question is, so what company would you go to work for? Yep. And the answer is um, lots of companies, most <laughs> companies, okay? If the, the single thing that's important is, is the company growing and experiencing organic growth? That tells you that they're doing innovation inside. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, IBM certainly comes up. Boeing would be a phenomenal place. You don't have to mm -hmm. go to Amazon, but it'd be a great place. Right. Google mm -hmm. is a great place. Um, they don't have to be high-tech companies. You know, There's a revolution going on in cars. Okay, There's a lot of stuff going on in you know, environmental stuff. Mm -hmm. And I say that with, with some slowness because I, I wouldn't want your listeners to say, yeah, yeah, I really want to go to work in a solar panel 
uh, company or, you know, uh, a windmill company or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not clear those companies, you know, are at the front end of, of science right. anymore. Right? right. You got to be very careful about that because there's a lot of hype in certain segments of the of uh, our industrial base. Um, so, you know, another area, a huge area is, you know, logistics. Our, mm-hmm. our lives are different because, you know, in my house, there are going to be three deliveries today. UPS right. will be here and right. Amazon will be here and somebody else will be here, you know, and then lunch will come, you know, uh, in a uh, Uber. Right. You know, that's all logistics. People are thinking about how to get stuff to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the number of trucks on the highway in the United States is higher than ever. The highest demand, I think, of, for jobs we have in the United States right now is truck drivers. Okay. Well, I'm not telling people they ought to be truck drivers because you probably won't learn a lot there. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the companies that deal with moving stuff. Right. And I mean, shipping companies, you know, airline shipping companies. And then there are specialties inside of what they ship. So, you know, if you think about this, you know, the banana you're eating right now came from Guatemala on a, on a programmed operation. I happen to know the industry pretty well. You know, there are like one company that votes to get to one warehouse, 40 ships. They come in and out every day, sometimes twice a day, Right. Those ships are loaded only with bananas. They go into a warehouse. There's one in Philadelphia that's in my mind right now. A ship comes in every day. Every day, 400 trailer trucks leave to take only bananas as far east as Missouri, as far north as Maine, as far south as North Carolina. And, Hmm. you know, nobody sees this. This is the invisible part of our economy. Um, Right. And, you know, that's that's the way people have to sort of examine how does the world work and where do I want to go? And I think that the torture that anybody who looks at the world this way is is not there aren't enough things to think about it's like holy smokes yeah this is the, this is the, this is the biggest smorgasbord i ever saw right. in my life what right. do i eat you know yeah yeah and i think it's it's a it's an interesting insight that i think you know the two big big things that i would just sort of take is number one try to be technical even if you're not an mm-hmm. engineer but like yep. there's the depth you'll develop at a company you, you even describe logistics which is understand the technical nature of logistics and yeah. frankly you can go back and become technical and, and learn to code and all those sorts of things so i think that's the first thing is there's a bias in our economy towards being technical and number two i think what i love about what you're saying is basically if you want to be an entrepreneur just be patient and mm-hmm. wait for a great idea i think yeah. i think some of the research out of kaufman said that 70 percent of entrepreneurs say they found their last idea at the job they're working at. So, so this like idea of being purposeful about that employment and, and, and maybe the, maybe the, if I were to summarize sort of this whole thing is employ sort of entrepreneurs are not being born and they're not even being taught. They're being made at their job. Yes. I I think that's the, that's the real boil down, you know? And one of the things that uh, this is just a small point for your listeners, you know, is one of the things that I don't think we do well in, in the way we socialize ourselves anymore is, you know, uh, uh, kids, and you know, I, I could even offend people by saying kids. So I'm talking about my students, right? Right. Yeah. And when they graduate, let's say they're 22, 23, right? It is so cool to say, "Yeah, I'm going to be an entrepreneur." Right. right? It is. It is. And, and I want to say, "No, stop with that foolishness." <laughs> yeah. Right. It is Just so. Just wait cool. till you do it. It's yeah, not fun. <laughs> it, it's so cool to be successful when you're 50. Let's think about it that way, right? Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. you want to be an entrepreneur, you might be really successful, right? But just slow down. Okay, and it's cool enough to say I got a really good job at uh, Procter and Gamble. Okay, um, 
And why is that so cool? And the answer is, hey, there's a Kaufman study that says, you know, uh, 80% of entrepreneurs find their company in a big company. So I'll be an entrepreneur someday, but my chances of being a more successful entrepreneur with a bigger company are going to be higher if I take a job, you know, at let's say Procter & Gamble. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're in a bar, that sort of stuns somebody. So Mm -hmm. you're already smarter, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, you know, stop trying to be an entrepreneur and try and be an innovator, try and be innovative, try and be a creator. You know, I love the fact that you call your class innovation because that's frankly you know, being an entrepreneur is just sort of uh, having enough passion and, and not enough sort of support internally to do it. Otherwise, most of the innovation should be done inside your job until you really figure out this has to be outside. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And uh, you'll have some evidence of that. I mean, you know, I've only been back teaching five years, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I get, uh, you know, email from kids who I've almost forgotten, but they mm-hmm. say, I took your course in you know, 2013, and you said da-da-da-da-da, right? And then they always tell me where they are, and uh, I'm always sort of surprised because they're then starting to talk about, you know, maybe I want to do a business or you can't believe how much I'm learning at um, XYZ Company, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Your advice was right, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, and, you know, I I could end with a story. There was a kid uh, at Syracuse, one of the smartest kids I've ever, ever dealt with up there, and he, he took a job at Macy's. Uh, hmm. and I told him, I said, you know, go to Macy's, he, he, you know, and he was, he was so smart, but he, it was the, it was a bad economy. He didn't have any choice. The other mm-hmm. option was to become a, a financial advisor at, uh, I think Fidelity or someplace, which I thought I almost got fired from that job once. Uh, so I, I thought, had a terrible job. I, oh God. I said, you know, you're too smart for that. Okay. <laughs> right. You're just too smart for that. You don't want to do that. Go to Macy's. Well, you know, uh, three years in. He was doing the most sophisticated analysis. He was one of a handful of people who had access to the entire data sets of of Macy's. He was doing incredible regression analysis, and you know, suddenly Macy's was thinking about when they restaff when they when they stock a brand or store differently, right? And, mm-hmm. and what colors they use when they're selling stuff in Los Angeles versus what colors they use when they're selling stuff in Chicago, because he'd figured out that there were very sophisticated coding on manufacturers' products that Macy's mm-hmm. wasn't analyzing. So they, you know, so they weren't selling, you know, color. And, you know, yeah. it always reminds me of one observation that seems to have been realized that came out of a business school article, article I read years ago. It basically was talking about, um, you know, that ice cream store I'm, um, that everybody goes to their every place. I'm forgetting the name of it. It's not haagen It's the Ben and Jerry's. No, no, it's the older one. Mm. Um, Anyway, um, I'm blanking on the name of it, but somebody said, you know, they don't sell ice cream, they sell color. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they make their colors so vivid. Um, it's it's an example of curiosity. I think you're exactly <laughs> right. And I think yeah. if, if you inspired him one way just to, I think, so one of the things I've found that I think is interesting about this word, the words that we talk about, we say, I want to be an entrepreneur. I have all these people who've come to me and say that. And when you actually like drill down and figure out what they really want, I think that we mistake the word entrepreneurship for autonomy. People want to feel like they have control and not maybe not even control, but just sort of 
they're doing something meaningful and purposeful. I don't think people really want to start companies or work for themselves any more than ever in the past. I just think that they feel like I want to have a stake in a part of something that meaningful. That's why I think so few people leave Amazon, right? There's this like question of like, why are there not more people who are more entrepreneurs being created out of Amazon? It's because what they're doing is so freaking interesting. Like why would they leave to go somewhere else than when what they're at is same with Netflix, right? They've got so many people that are just really doing cool stuff there. Why would you leave? Yeah. I think, I think that's right. And, it's, and they have the solace of being in a growth business, right? Mm-hmm. So their own financial investment is, is doing well. But it, it's your point. It's, it's more interesting. And I think in my book, actually, I, there's a substantial part of the book that says, why do people become entrepreneurs? And I think it's a sort of, a, it's, you know, it's a spectrum of reasons. But I think exactly like you think, um, you know, Eric, it's, it's much more like I want to control my life, mm-hmm. you know? And I want to have a I want to have a contributing life where I'm creative, and maybe one of the right ways to end here is that you know it kills me in universities because you know you go to the commencements and the uh, speakers are always saying you know and we have in our class all these wonderfully creative people in the arts and in the nonprofit sector and they're going to work in government and da 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 and I keep looking at the at the class I'm saying this guy's crazy. 95% of these people are taking jobs in big companies, right? And you just told them that they're slugs. They're not going to be creative, right? They're not doing the really good stuff, right? Because they're not working for government or what, right? And, you know, maybe the curse I have is I'm a contrarian, but I'm a contrarian economist. And I keep thinking, you know, first of all, they're going to express creativity in a completely different way, right? Don't run right. them down. And second, their contributions are going to change human welfare for all of us. So somebody might in this class, be the next Picasso and paint a picture. Yeah. Hoo-ha. We'll yeah. enjoy yeah. it, right? But n- but nobody's going to have more beans on the table to eat yeah. as a result of that other yeah. than Picasso. Yeah. Um, you know, let's get straight about yeah. how the economy works. This has been awesome, Carl. I know, uh, I, you know, the jealous part of me is I want to let you go so you can go keep looking at the ocean since, uh, you know, yeah. since the rest of us probably are. <laughs> This is super fun. And, and I think, you know, obviously I, I, the book is great. I will, you know, the, my ask to everyone, uh, get it, take a picture, uh, send a picture to Carl. And, uh, so he can tweet out about all the love that it is. And, uh, I think, you know, the, the title is burn the business plan. And I think the sub, the subtext of this one is just do things that can actually help you become curious deep in that sort of stuff. Because, you know, I think Carl is like me, we will all want to see more people doing interesting stuff. And, and when you're doing more interesting stuff, more businesses happen. So, um, I'm a big fan Carl, what you're doing, and uh, and I'm excited to, uh, to do some more fun, fun stuff together. Great. Uh, I, I just have enjoyed this immensely. Um, and you're right. If anybody wants to uh, get in touch with me, go to the website or get to me at carl at carlshram.com. Awesome. Carl, thank you so much. Hey, great. Great.